guy. Zoltan. I trust him. <laughs> He's clearly selling me valuable goods. He's clearly He's at, a my good, at a good price, I'm sure. With with a sinister, with don't mind his sinister no. uh, countenance. Welcome to Which Game First, where we boldly explore the hilariously huge world of board games. Did we unearth any hidden treasures you've been missing out on? Let's find out. First up this week, as an unlikely pair, we try to coordinate our tactics through the crossfire of romance in Fog of Love. Next up, we make our moves in the legendary city-state of Nikala to gain the Sultan's favor in Five Tribes. And lastly, is a Zarf an ornamental cup holder or a commercial coin buffer? We take our best guess in Call My Bluff. I'm your host, Celeste Angelus. Now let's meet the rest of our brave and intrepid panel. Hi, I'm Evan Bernstein. Roald Dahl once said, life is more fun if you play games. I couldn't agree more. Hi, I'm Ed Povolaitis. Randy Park once said, we cannot change the cards we are dealt, just how we play the hand. Hi, I'm Joe Unfrey. Michael Jordan once said, talent wins games, but teamwork and intelligence win championships. Hi, I'm Mike Grenier, and in the immortal words of Coach Bum Phillips, winning is just a half of it. Having fun is the other half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bum. Hey, everybody. This year, Which Game First is headed down south to one of the biggest game and media conventions in the country. That's right, Celeste. We are going to be at Dragon Con this coming Labor Day weekend, September 2nd through September 5th. We'll be talking games, playing games, and we might even be recording a special episode live from Dragon Con's massive game room. Details forthcoming, but one thing is for sure, we will be there and we want you to come out and see us. So exciting. Pack your camel caravans, everybody, and follow the stars. Get ready to unearth some gems with us. Atlanta, here we come. I'm packing my hump duffels right now. <laughs> and don't forget to share, subscribe, review, and like the podcast so even more of us can meet up in Atlanta. Our first game up this week is Fog of Love, designed by Jacob Jaskov, producer Hush Hush Projects in 2017. Number of players, two. Ages 17 and up. Runtime, 60 to 120 minutes. Okay, when we put this game under a magnifying glass... What were our first impressions? Mike? I saw people playing it at PAX, and it made me think I wandered into a speed dating for nerds. Evan? Fog of Love is to role-playing games as Slapjack is to poker tournaments. Ed? Dating! The board game? And Joe? At first glance, this game looks complex, but can it actually simulate the progress of a romance? Hmm, a romance-themed board game that wants me to role-play my way to victory? I got this. But before we send out a save the date, Evan, tell us a little bit about how it's played. Fog of Love is a game for two. The players will play characters that become a couple who will wind their way through a love story. The players will first build their characters' occupations, features, and aspects in a collaborative process. Then the players choose traits that are kept secret. The love story is separated into chapter and scene cards that tell the story. Throughout the story, the player characters will have decisions to make. Using their choice tokens, they will secretly decide, then reveal their choice. Depending on their choices, one or both players may score points. During the game, the players will try to score points to help them achieve their private destinies and reach their trait goals. 
Whether that results in a successful relationship depends on who their characters are. This game is widely liked by reviewers. What did you guys think on your first experience? I think Evan and Mike, you guys played around, right? Yes, me and Evan were a lovely couple in this game. Uh, we were and still are. <laughs> yep, yeah, true. It, it, it made our relationship solid. Definitely. That actually brings up an interesting part of this. You are definitely playing characters, not yourselves in any aspect of this. So you have to keep in mind that you are playing everything from your character's point of view. And all your choices are based on that. But Mikey, you had an issue with that, right? Yeah, I, I felt like... The decisions I was making, I had to choose between a fun role play or trying to actually win the game. It kind of forces you to do something that would be outside of what you would rather do in the moment to make the role play more exciting. If you're going to stay true to the character that you've built for role playing, you're not going to win this game, basically. You have to kind of throw victory out the window. You're just going to play for the sake of either playing for the fun of trying to role play a character or going for victory by coming up with the correct matches that will that you think are going to are going to work to advance you the most. But doesn't that happen in all role-playing games? D&D has tons of different kinds of goals. There's no one end way. There's only one way to win Fog of Love. Yeah, that brings up an excellent point where these cards are very specific and you have to do very specific things to win them. And no matter who you are, no matter what traits your character has, the card remains the same. So the results don't change based on the characters. Whereas when you're playing a tabletop game, the DM adjusts the story with every step based on the characters he's dealing, he or she is dealing with. We're used to much more fluidity in our role-playing experiences. You don't get that with the Fog of Love, I'm afraid. Without an actual game master independent of the players, you can't actually change the story on the fly. That's the crux of the matter between role-playing and board games and why it's so hard to blend the two. We can have fun role-playing our characters through games where the role-playing doesn't really matter. You know, like it doesn't actually affect the mechanics, such as Too Many Bones, where you're given a full (laughs) fleshed-out character, and you can role-play for fun as much as you want, but really you're focused on the mechanics of the game, and those two things don't compete. Well, there are some really good storytelling games out there, but they the scoring is a little bit more arbitrary or decided by the rest of the crowd so that if you are focused on your role playing and you make everybody laugh or drag them into a compelling scene, they score you. And this one here, the game has an AI feature that scores you basically. Head over heels in love. You are. You totally are. I'm so much. I'm about 33% more in love with her than she is with me. That's okay. Maybe. I'll work on it. Time changes things. I'll I'll douse myself in more seducing scent. Close your eyes. Can you guess where I'm taking you? To a secret party with famous people in Champagne? That's A. To, I don't know, I lost track of where we're going, man. (laughs) 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 Or C, to the local square to listen to the street storytellers' sentimental love stories. Now, um, let me tell you, if we match, we both get plus two. I mean, I know which one we should pick, but I'm going to pick that one. Oh, crumbs, that means we didn't get it. You fool, really? Are you, well, I wasn't. Because I thought you were going to go. That was never going to be my pick either way. The scenes are the main storytelling stuff. And then looking through there, there seems to be a few elements of what you would see in a rom com. Like the one I'm looking at here is called The Toilet Seat. 
Should the seat be up or down? And what about the lid? Right, but the choices tell them exactly what the rewards will be. If the rewards were hidden and you just role-played what you thought you should do and then revealed the rewards, maybe then it would be a little more interesting. If you're role-playing, you want to be able to make a decision without knowing what's going to happen next. Yeah, and you're actually kind of making some choices about a scenario that you're going to do, too. It comes out of your hand. So you're like, I don't want to play this one because it doesn't further any of my other goals. You have a set of the cards in your hand, and they all have part of the story on them. And you get to decide whether or not you want to play a card and present that aspect of the story. However, some of these portions of the story aren't going to work well for you winning, or they're not going to work well for you role-playing. I don't think semi-cooperative resource management sounds very uh, romantic to me. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wanted to try this game out because it looks nice. The components are well-engineered, great large cards. They got actual heavy ship for your uh, choosing token, a box of little wooden token, card holders. There is no doubt the production value is awesome in this game. It is beautiful looking. And... Joe and I were lucky enough to be the first people to play this set. So we were able to open all of the packages and things and we, everything was nice and orderly. It was very exciting. I, I love the color palette too. It had like a bright, inviting color palette. Yeah, I think the art was kind of interesting. It was kind of almost abstractish. Everything's like silhouettes of just either pink or blue. If I recall correctly, there was an allowance for same gender couples actually there's several other box covers now so you can get same gender couples as well um i believe it says in the rules make your character whatever gender you want Mm -hmm. i don't think they slapped that on at the last minute either the game doesn't feel like you're forced into thinking you're one gender or another at any point i didn't love the symbology of the game I know that they were trying to avoid things like hearts and, you know, standard, <laughs> yeah. standard, you know, romantic cheesiness. They were tracking a lot of variables. There were so many things to track. I believe there were six variables, and then each variable had to be calculated separately for each of the two partners, I think. Yes. Well, plus was... there was a positive and a negative. The negative took away from the positive. So if yeah. you had three dots in the negative and four in the positive, you're doing math now. If you ultimately want to have a confrontation between two characters, and one character is getting madder and madder and madder, and then finally there's a blowout, I mean, you have to kind of carefully calculate how many straws have to get on that camel's back before it breaks, and you have the blowout. Okay, be honest. Do these (laughs) pants fit me? (laughs) A, perfect, just perfect. B, to be honest, not really. And C, they do, but I'm not sure you really like them. They're not really your style. Too plain, perhaps. Every scene sort of felt like it petered out rather than closed. So instead of an exciting blowout, you're getting this like peevish uh, (laughs) ending to the story. Yeah, you're like, well, I disagree and I agree and let's reveal our tokens and oh yeah, disagree and agree. Okay, let's stop the scene and score it. Like it wouldn't wouldn't be fun to have to watch a movie or read a book and have to stop after every scene and score it. Mm. (laughs) it's like watching a movie and pausing it and then like writing notes about what you just watched (laughs) yeah it does pull you out of the story a little bit okay explorers get your shovels out it's time to dig up or bury fog of love ed well i'll reserve my judgment for now because i didn't get to play yet 
But I am actually looking forward to trying this out. Joe? I'm willing to dig this up on behalf of two things. How ambitious it is and how well it does succeed in the face of trying to take on so much. Evan? Uh, noble effort, but sorry, it doesn't cut it in my book. I can roleplay other games and I'm going to bury it. <laughs> Mike? I wanted it to be like a decision tree, like a cooperative choose-your-own-adventure book, or maybe something that simulated an actual relationship, but it didn't give me either one of those things, so I'm going to have to bury it. This is a great-looking game. I will give it that. Beautiful components, really interesting to open and lay out for the first time. But the story and play of this game felt more like a romance than a rom-com, and keeping track of everything distracted me from the spirit of the game. So I'm going to have to bury it. This game is widely available. I saw it online for $10 for the original box and up to $30 for the whole set with expansions. If you have thoughts about Fog of Love, we would love to hear from you. Let us know. We are at Which Game First on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our next game up this week is Five Tribes, the Jinns of Nakala, designed by Bruno Cathala, published by Days of Wonder in 2014. Number of players, two to four, ages 13 and up. Runtime, 40 to 80 minutes. Okay, when we shined a light on this find, what were our first impressions? Mike? Is this Camel Mancala? Evan? It's our first game review of 2019 with camels in it. Will it be our only one? Ed? A four-player game called Five Tribe? Okay. Joe? I was excited by the possibility of Genie showing up. <laughs> Another game with camel meeples. Ed, you're just bringing them on purpose now, aren't you? Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> but before we pack our hump duffels and head to Nakala, Evan, tell us a little bit about how it's played. Five Tribes begins with your meeples already in place, and players must cleverly maneuver them over the villages, markets, oases, and sacred places tiles that make up Nakwala. How, when, and where you displace these five tribes of assassins, elders, builders, merchants, and viziers determine your victory or failure. On your turn, you pick up all the meeples at one location and move them to adjacent tiles one by one. The last meeple you place must match a meeple on that tile. Remove all the meeples of that color and perform that tribe's action. If you cleared all the meeples from that tile, you place one of your camels there to claim it. Then you perform that tile's action, either placing a palm tree or palace, buying goods from the market, or summoning a jinn. The game ends when one player has placed 11 camels or there are no more meeples to move. The player with the most victory points becomes the great Sultan of Nakwala. Okay, camels, caravans, moving meeples. What'd you guys think? Well, one of the things I thought looked really good is the uh, the tile. They have the great little tiles you lay out, and it starts off with all the meeples on the board. And then the object of the game or the game ends when the meeples are gone. It sounds like a game that's inviting cats to jump on the table and make your life miserable. Oh, yeah, that would that would spoil almost any game, but especially this one. So it has the same mechanic of Moncala, which I guess was the original game that had this mechanic. And we played it in a former game called Planes. And mm. there I mm -hmm. absolutely despised it, where you pick up a group and you drop them as you <laughs> That's go. Right. But in this game, 
I enjoyed it quite a bit. So the mechanic wasn't the problem. Um, and in this game, the tiles are very attractive. They're well-designed, they're easy to see and understand, and laid out very clearly with clear symbology. So right from the get-go, it was enjoyable and simple to understand. It seemed to have another layer on top of Moncala where the actual types of pieces that you place down had kind of abilities or something like that? There are five tribes for fighters in action. The assassins allow you to either assassinate another meeple somewhere. The elders allow you to either get victory points or summon jinn. Uh, the builders give you straight up victory points. The piece that you place down matters because it's one of the five tribes and it gives you a specific action at the time that you place it. Does it matter how many of a certain piece are in a certain location? Like, does it do different things depending on how you gather the pieces together? Yeah, well, if you get more pieces off the board at the same time, you get to do more stuff. Ed, your opening move was to claim three of the same colored pieces on one of the tiles. Only one of our tiles on our opening board had the same three colored meeples on that one tile. And you went right for it. You started the game and you grabbed those all up. So you maximized your point potential on that one. Oh, absolutely. And the other key thing there was I empty the tile. This is the empty tile. You get to claim it and you get that tile VP at the end of the game. And then you get to put your camel on it. So camels are sort of like the ultimate victory of that location. Cashed in. You cashed in like a cow. Yeah. Yeah. What? Wait, I was doing a donkey. <laughs> what a camel. What a camel's the spit. Do they make a noise? Yeah. I really like the use of the camels for that because you're claiming a space on the board is yours. It's like grabbing a parking space. Which where I live is like $300 a month. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is a game right there you can design. New York parking. Oh my parking. God, parking in New York City game? <laughs> it couldn't be more frustrating than the real thing, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think another mechanic that works fairly well is the turn order bidding. The first player bids on a spot and it costs X amount and then other players could decide whether or not they want to pay more to go first or pay less and go not first. Did you land on this one? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You also get two. Double your treat. Get double out. your pleasure. That's awesome. Because that was every penny I spent. Totally. Zero. Yep. I certainly like that mechanic better than um, the turn order mechanic that was in Eschaton last week, which just kept moving first player to the next player and ended up sometimes you have these long pauses that you had no control over between your last turn and your next. This way you get to decide whether or not you want to wait. Yeah, it makes turn order kind of like a critical resource in the game that you have to decide what it's worth for yourself. Definitely. If you want to go for the gold and go for broke, you can consistently grab the stuff you want you know, before anyone else can and hamstring your opponents. But sometimes the opportunities open up when other players do stuff, so going last wasn't that bad sometimes. No, I actually enjoyed going last. I, f- I think I only bid for turn order once. Every other time I was just like, eh, zero. Because going last, I got to see so much going on before I took my turn. And opportunities change quick in this game, which I really appreciated. It always felt like it was moving and changing. It felt very dynamic. Yeah, I often choose to go last in strategy games, too, because seeing what other people have done also gives you an idea of what their strategy is, too. And it allows you to try to mesh with that in some way. They give you plenty of choices on how to build your victory points and several strategies, you know, which, of course, always adds to the replayability of the game, makes you want to come back and try different things. Now, did you find that people would 
like in a lot of games that have multiple different paths to victory, somebody starts dominating one path to victory and you just ignore it? Or were there always like contentious fights over the different ways to get victory points? Sometimes people would let others get away. Like Evan got the first path of his years and he was leading that and he was going to get that victory point. And I showed not to follow off of that. I try to go for the strategy of getting the elders so I can get Jin's. The nice thing about this, Mike, is there's so many paths to victories. With four players, we didn't really bump into each other that much. So did you find that it was a good thing that there was an, a lot of times where you weren't stepping on each other's toes and getting in each other's way? But it did happen. Like one turn, I saw Evan pick up the assassin so we can kill one of Joe's viziers and take the lead. It was a good balance of competitiveness and individual growth. I liked that a lot. Once in a while, you'd be like, grr, I wanted to do that. But there's other opportunities there. So it doesn't completely hamstring you. I could see that Ed was going for gins a long time before the gin actually arrived. Do, do gins usually arrive in the late game? Well, it depends on how quickly you pick up elders. You need elders in order to get gin. But you could, in theoretic, you could theoretically have them on the first turn if you manage to pick up two elders or an elder and a slave on the first spot you land. And that spot also was a sacred place where you can get gin. Oh, so it's not necessarily a, a late game thing. The gins I felt, were too difficult to get, especially based on their special abilities, which means you're spending victory points on a gin that's going to be hard to get value back on. Get to know them ahead of the game and plan early if you're going to use those. Yeah, ask them out for coffee and maybe find out what their interests are. <laughs> yep. and then, uh, yeah. yeah, and there's 22 of them in the base game. I think another thing Evan did well is he gathered a lot of goods. He played the market extremely well. Yeah, the, the, the trick there is you want goods, but you want one of every different type of good, of which I believe there were nine or ten different types. And the more unique ones you have, the larger you can cash in at the end for your victory points. So I did. I started playing the picking up those market cards kind of early. Your bazaar is all about having a wide selection. Oh, yeah. Our bazaar has the finest goods. We have the, <laughs> the best of everything. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of the strategies interact with each other. That's it. You're right. I had to discipline myself. I tend to go for one thing and go for it hard. But I saw right away here that targeting one was not going to get you enough. Right. You'll probably miss a ton of opportunities. Yeah, you don't have to immerse yourself in the rules in order to see that you know all the different paths to victory are sufficiently interconnected that you've got to split your focus. And Mike, the game came with this awesome score pad. And a tiny golf pencil and everything. <laughs> no, no golf pencil. <laughs> Come on, next next time, <laughs> put in the golf pencil, folks. That's one thing I really enjoyed, the production value of the game. It had a nice board, colorful art, a lot of wooden pieces. I mean, lots mm -hmm. of wood. There's camels, there's panels, there's palaces. Mm. It's a colorful game, Very, a lot of fun to look at, a lot of little uh, details and things. Okay, explorers, it's time to dig up or bury five tribes. Joe, how about you? Oh, I'm digging this up. The game has a lot of facets. Pick a couple of them to concentrate on and run with them. Evan? I like this meeple-heavy game. I like multiple paths to earn victory points. I can't really say it felt like I was swept away to Araby. I was too busy performing all the calculations in my head to bask in the oasis or enjoy the figs and dates, but mechanics are good, so I will release it from its sandy bondage and dig it up. Mike? Well, sadly, I did not get to play this game, but from hearing the conversation about it, it seems to have a lot of different interesting layers of strategy, so I'm looking forward to it. 
Ed? I enjoy the twist of working to remove Meeple from the board in a variety of ways to score points. Also, the game is easy to learn despite the number of components in its moving parts, so dig her up. This is a game with lots to do and just the right amount of playtime. I really enjoyed it as a Euro game and a victory point gatherer. Dig it up. Ed, where can you find this game? You can find Five Tribes and its two expansions at its local game stores or online. The MSRP is about 60 bucks. Ooh, what are the expansions? The expansions include the Artisans of Nakwala, the Thieves of Nakwala, and the Whims of the Sultan. If you have thoughts about Five Tribes, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our last game up this week is Call My Bluff, designed by Mark Goodson and Philip Hinden. We played the 1965 Milton Bradley edition. Number of players, 2 to 6, ages 10 and up. Runtime, 60 minutes. Okay, when we dusted off this find, what were our first impressions? Mike? I'm wondering how this is going to hold up to its great-grandchild, Balderdash. Evan? The word petrichor is defined as that smell the earth has after it has rained. Go ahead, call my bluff. Ed? The word petrichor is defined as a petrified flower or plant. Go ahead, call my bluff. Joe? Printed lists of definitions for very obscure words. Already a winner. So many perforated pieces of cardstock to pull apart before the game even begins. That alone may be worth the playtime. But before we bluff, Evan, tell us how it's played. In Call My Bluff, players are divided into two teams, red team versus blue team. Each team receives books with definitions of words that they're going to be displaying for the other team. Some of the books have the actual definitions in them, and the others just simply say bluff. For those that say bluff, you have to make up a definition for the word that's on display for the other team. The other team has to guess as to whether you're given the real definition or if you're bluffing. Guess correctly and your team wins $50. Guess incorrectly and the other team wins $50. A standard game runs eight guesses, four each per team, and the team with the most money at the end is declared the winner. And for the rest of their lives, those winners get a plus one modifier check to any bluff rolls they make in real Sweet. life. Sweet! $50? Wow! And uh, 200 <laughs> bucks in 1965. <laughs> and by the way, the rules are printed on the box, which I love. On the inside cover of the box. Love it. That's an old Milton Bradley special right there. I have a hard time seeing how it could take 60 minutes to do the eight guesses. That was on the board game Geek. There is no game time actually listed on the box. Yeah, it's because 60 Minutes is ridiculous. First off, let me just say, the retroness of the box was a delight to see. It's these old-fashioned cartoon people on the cover. And and my favorite part of the box cover was, it says, call my bluff, the new TV game. Right on the cover, right? (laughs) But this TV show was on NBC from March 29th to September 24th, and then it was off the air. Yeah, because they ran out of money giving out 50 bucks per question answer. Per question. <laughs> Is that what it was? Now, there was a British version that used to be on BBC Two, and that ran several seasons. So perhaps it was more popular in England than it was here. <laughs> well, I wonder if by the time Milton Bradley licensed and printed this game, it was already off the air. It could <laughs> have been. been, yeah. That's a strong possibility. Ouch. There was an MC named Bill Layden. Then there was Johnny Olson and Wayne Howell as announcers. Johnny Olson. Wow. The Johnny Olson. And yeah. a, a TV staple of the period. You couldn't get away from Johnny Olson's voice in like that time period. 
Also, on the box cover of the 1987 version, which we didn't play, they're actually on that version. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. This is 20 years after the six-month TV show existed. Nostalgia. Someone got nostalgic over there. I guess so. So anyway, back to this version of the game. Uh, The box cover was fantastic. The standees that they had inside the box to place the words in was really neat. Each team got their own. And my very favorite thing about retro games is everybody getting a personal booklet. Oh, yeah. That was nice. I love having information that no other player has in a game. And these old-fashioned games offer that a lot more often. And just ripping those pieces apart, like you said. (laughs) The people these days don't, they won't abide by tearing the pieces off separately because it will make them look slightly different and they'll be worried about cheating. Back then, they were like, (laughs) screw it. Just tear them apart. (laughs) Some of them, you lose the corner. Big deal whatever nobody's gonna care it says on the box cover in the rules tear them off as you need them when evan got his vintage copy some of them were not yet torn because they followed the rules on the cover which really don't matter as far as i could tell they don't matter at all (laughs) speaking of following the rules i know this is a milton bradley game but the game's currency looks suspiciously like monopoly money (laughs) sure did yeah. I think all money back then looked like Monopoly money. Well, Milton Bradley's version of Monopoly money, yeah. Joe, what company printed Monopoly? Parker Brothers. Yeah, so it is interesting that it's very similar. What about the actual words of the game themselves? I was impressed. Me too. Well, I found out that an aki-aki was a hop bush from New Zealand. I thought they'd use that to brew beer because it's a hop bush, but it turns out it's a remedy for dysentery. (laughs) The more you know. These are real words that I had never heard of, and there's hundreds of them. Uh, Here's a few examples. Singulum, C-I-N-G-U-L-U-M. Never heard of that word. Williwa, W-I-L-L-I-W-A-W. Real word. Oh, and by the way, at the beginning of the uh, episode, we said, what's a zarf? And turns out a zarf is a cup holder for a cup. (laughs) It's a cup cup holder. It's those cardboard sleeves that you get like in coffee places. Yep. Also a decorative outer cup, like a metallic stein that you might put around a, say, port glass or something there it's any cup holder that you put a cup in now are all these definitions like american words or are they all functional words now or are they words that have just fallen out of favor like where are they getting these words from these are legit english dictionary words I didn't know uh, Evan's word from the beginning. Petrichor is defined as the smell the earth has after it's rained. I was like, wow, that's cool. Right? Who knew that that had a definition? Uh, It's amazing that with this group of people, the the amount of vocabulary we know, and you guys were baffled by a lot of these words. That's that's impressive. Oh, I thought Joe was going to roll over us in this game, but even some of the words dump him. Oh, yeah. The word is? Suzerian. I thought it was suzerain. Susan, do you know this word? Yeah. You do know this word? A small cannon used about the 15th century. Okay. Okay, Angela? A superior lord. Yeah. We'll call me your block. That's definitely the Correct. right definition. Leave it to Joe to know one of the words. So if you're a wordsmith, this game could be fascinating for you, I think. Now, how hard was it to actually come up with bluffs on the fly? Yeah, that's the real key to this game is how well can you deceive your opponents? And they give you a little, a good hint in that whatever it is you're going to try to make up for your word, make sure you look like you're reading it from the book. 
Because if you're just kind <laughs> right. of your eyes rolling up into the sky, it's obvious that you'll be making something up. The act of grinding dirt into small granules. <laughs> Got a triangular in this stuff. All right, that's Ed's. Let's hear Joe's. It's a um, marine echinoderm of the North Atlantic coast. <laughs> I mean, this sounds like a double bluff to me. It does sound double bluffy. Yeah, I could see the metagame being very easy to tell if somebody's bluffing in this. Or an easy thing to do is to just use one of the other definitions that's written there in the book for one of the other words and just utilize that. Oh, or yeah, or change a word or two around from that definition. And I'm unfortunately, I ended up doing that quite a bit because you're rushed so much. That's where I felt the game fell down. The mechanics weren't great for me to enjoy making up a bluff. Was there any reason why you couldn't take a little pause? We'd all have to agree on taking a significant pause because if you're the only one that pauses, you're going to give it away. Well, right. That's what I mean. As a as a group, you could say, all right, we're going to have a little 30-second timer. Yeah. And then everybody can read their definitions. There's no mechanic for that, but sure. So very much like any 1965 Milton Bradley Park Brothers type game, um, the rules weren't super clear. I thought there was enough in the rules there to definitely play it out. The problem I had with the rules is that in the case of a tie, there are no tiebreaker rules. <laughs> None whatsoever. No no alluding to a tie. Nothing. <laughs> and with eight rounds and even a number of rounds and everything, your chances of having a tie are pretty darn good. Yeah. It almost killed Evan that we tied. <laughs> I did because I wanted to come up with a tiebreaker. I was voted down in, in that we had to play by the rules, and the rules don't allow for tiebreakers, so we ended in a tie. I mean, especially with a game that's based on an actual game show, short-lived as it may have been. I Maybe mean, that's why it was short-lived. They didn't have a tiebreaker. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the show ended in a tie, and everybody was super mad. I mean, one thing for sure, it wasn't, uh, wasn't Johnny Olsen's fault. <laughs> <laughs> it's never Johnny Olsen's fault. Don't you dare say anything bad about Johnny Olsen. Johnny Olsen is a legend. Okay, explorers, get your shovels out. It's time to dig up or bury. Call my bluff. Ed, how about you? The focus is more on doing good bluff versus being a word game. And I don't need to know how to spell them. So that's a plus for me. Dig it up. Joe? Everyone. Dig this up immediately, or I'll report you all to the Zaptier. <laughs> Evan? Wow, so many words I've never heard of, and I have apparently never needed to know. The game itself is short. It's a fun exercise, and you can put it in the warm-up category on game night, so dig it up. Mike? I was not there for this game, but because of my love of words and weird stuff, I would definitely look forward to trying this out. Yeah, just for the words alone, I think this game is a delight, and there are a lot of them. So the shelf life is relatively long. The bluffing part, I think if you added some house rules, could really be fun too. So I'm going to say dig it up. Evan, where can you find it? At the usual haunts for used games, such as eBay or Etsy. I found mine online for about $12. If you have thoughts about Call My Bluff, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
And that brings us to the end of our show. We look forward to hearing about all the game exploring you've done. If you'd like more perks or content from our show, including exclusive episodes for just $3 a month, you can go to our website and click on Become a Supporter today. If you get a chance, leave us a rating or a review on your favorite podcaster. It really helps others find the show. Join our chat on our Discord server. We are at Which Game First, and our Patreon supporters get access to exclusive channels. Follow us on your favorite social media. We are at Which Game First on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Happy gaming, explorers! Hey, do you guys know what the bottom level of a house of cards is called? The Acement. <laughs>